Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you created this world good and made a good place for us to dwell in. And yet, our father Abraham rebelled against you, and we likewise rebel time and again. But you provide for us a sacrifice in Christ. May we ever be mindful of this, and may we take it when you put it upon us, that we may live to your glory. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. When I was in my 20s, I went to a little seminary that had some interesting views on things, including on how Scripture came to be and, and what it was. And I'd like to say that this is when the first seed was planted, but I don't, I don't think that that's true. But at that time, the seed of doubt about the, the authority of Scripture became planted in my mind, and I found it deteriorated at belief more than you might expect. I found that there were doubts in my mind that popped up over and over and deeper and deeper again, until one day I remember really clearly I was walking home Um, down the street of this little town that I lived in. And I had this overwhelming conviction that if I was going to call myself Christian, if I was going to follow the Lord, then I needed to take Scripture seriously. I needed to believe it. And over time, there's been healing in this to having this sure understanding that what God said is true. And as we open up our our section this week in Genesis 3, we notice what the serpent's attack is. We notice what it is and and what he attacks. But it starts off innocently enough because Adam's been warned about what to do and what not to do. But he would assume, as we might assume if we just read the first sentence of Genesis 3, that the serpent was good. Admittedly, he's called crafty, but all of creatures were good. And so as the serpent walks into the garden and starts to talk, Adam at first is probably like, oh, cool, another animal friend coming in to see me. But as we read on, we realize that there's there's a bit more going on here than simply the serpent being friendly. And before we jump into this, there's some interesting things here. First and foremost... Many of the ancient Near Eastern cultures around the Hebrew Hebrew nation would have worshipped serpents. And so there's a little bit of an argument or a polemic going on here where Moses and and God, through Moses' hand, is saying, don't worship the other gods. It's a very subtle thing going on as we work our way through, but I think there's a part of that is that warning. And secondly... As we read on through scripture, we have to finally get to Revelation 12. We find out who that serpent really is. It's not just a new animal friend for Adam to hang out, but Revelation 12 tells us that the ancient serpent, that would be this serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. In other words, this isn't just a new animal friend like we said, but the devil come to tempt them. And so the red flag then arises in that second, that second uh, sentence. The red flag arises as the, the devil asks the question. <clears throat> and 
And, and if we read on through scripture, we realize that Eve isn't just standing there alone, kind of having a nice afternoon, maybe a little break from Adam because he's working her too hard or something. But rather, they're, they're there together. Verse 6 tells us Adam is there with her. And as soon as the serpent opened his mouth, that's when Adam should have been like, no, 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 no. This is wrong. Out of the garden. You're, you're not welcome here with your questions that are not good. <clears throat> But the question plants the temptation, like what I experienced many years ago, to question God's word. <clears throat> and that's how temptation often starts. God's word gives us some pretty clear understanding of how we're to live our lives, so on and so forth. And then temptation goes, well, did God really say that this is the way it should be? Did God really say that? Or, or is there a little wiggle room in there? And before you know it, You've gone down the, the path of wiggle room to just blown right open, and it's no longer wiggle room, but a bright, well, a dark, horrible pasture of, of sin. And then the woman responds in verse 3c. The woman responds, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that it is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. So, Satan started this temptation and said, well, well, can you really trust what God has said? Is that really what he said? And Eve does something equally bad, and I, I think we can probably assume, because the commandment was given to Adam, that probably Adam just told her, you know, there's that tree over there. We, we're not supposed to eat it, but you know what? You know what? Don't even touch it. And so I, I suspect, and this is my guess, is that Adam, instead of you know, trying to help Eve learn how to live in the garden well, Adam was just like, you know what? There's that tree Stay, stay away from it. It's, it's bad news. And we can kind of understand that, right? We, we, want to, um, we want to be very careful about sin. But what, she, what he does is, is the first example of legalism. And this is the big issue Jesus has with the Pharisees, right? He's, he says, well, no, you keep adding to my word, to the word of my Father. That's not good. We're not supposed to add to God's word. We're not supposed to detract from it, nor are we supposed to add to it. And so that's always our tension when we live in Christ or when we, we want to be obedient to God is either turn away from the parts that we kind of don't like because they, they challenge us or they draw out or point out some sin in our lives or to add in it because we're really, really scared that we're going to break something and subsequently we aren't trusting what he said. And so that's what she does. And then the serpent responds, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <clears throat> and so, so, so Satan, or the serpent, goes on and makes a lie. A lie that says, <clears throat> a lie that says, no, no, you can become like God with no consequences whatsoever. You don't need God to have wisdom. You don't need God to depend upon him. You can be like him yourself. And ultimately, that, that sense of wanting that independence from God is really the core of sin. If we really drill down deep into any sin that we struggle with, it, it, it's the doubt that what God has said is good, but then above that is often that sense that we want to be God ourselves. As I was preparing for this and thinking about Satan's lie in this moment, 
I stumbled across this quote from the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. It's a a sharp reminder about lies, and particularly this lie. He writes, if you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, but you must be right. In other words, you must dwell in the word of God and not in lies. Lies that are so often easy to believe because we want them to be true. And then we see how Eve becomes overwhelmed in this sense of temptation. She sees this fruit, whatever it was, that it's good for food. It's a delight to the eye, and it's desiring, desirable to make one wise. It's good for food. Her desire to consume, her, her gluttony, her lustfulness overcomes her. It's good to see. It's, it's attractive. It's, it's, it's there, and it's, it's beautiful. It's a desire to make one wise, to make one wise outside of dwelling in God. And these are how those temptations overwhelm us. And so she takes the fruit and she eats it. And this is where we're reminded that Adam is standing right there. You know, if you're, you're here with your spouse, it's like, like how close you are to your spouse right now. He's just right there and she's like, here you go. And he takes it and eats it. And we often are like, well, it's all Eve's fault. It's like, well, no, Adam is right there, and he always has the authority and the power to stop it, and he doesn't. He was witness, and he was there, and he also ate. Now, there's a a little bit of hope here. We kind of got to dig deep to find that hope. This is one of those really, 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 perhaps the darkest moments, except for perhaps when Christ was crucified, in Scripture. But Christ faced something interesting as well, right? We remember he's driven out into the wilderness, and then Satan pushes him with a threefold temptation as well. Eve has a threefold temptation. She's tempted with the goodness of the food, the delight to the eye, and the desire to be wise. And likewise, Christ was tempted three times. But here's the hopeful thing, my friends. Christ did not give in. Where we have failed in temptation again and again and again and again, Christ faced temptation, faced a harsh threefold temptation, and made it through. He knows the full force, the full power, the full pain of not giving in to temptation. And so when you are faced with temptation, whatever that temptation is, he knows what that feels like, and he can sympathize with you. That, my friends, is a hopeful thing. Now, for those of you who've missed Moose Stories over the last few weeks or probably a couple months, I have some good news for you. I have a little Moose story to illustrate what happened next. We have this little dog called Moose. You can ask my wife why she's called Moose, why he's called Moose. That's her story, not mine, and it's funny and not as ironic as you might think. <clears throat> and he's a wonderful, wonderful little dog, but this is actually about something bad that he did. And one of the things, I think he just really wants us to be happy with him. And, and by and large, we are, because he's a wonderful dog. 
And, and he's learned, we've kind of learned to communicate when he needs to go to the bathroom. But one time, I think he probably communicated, I need to go to the bathroom, and I was too busy to pay attention to him or whatever, and I hopped in the shower. And I heard this weird noise out the shower, and I looked out, and he's rolling something along the ground that he should not have done on the floor of, of our bathroom. I'll let you fill in the blanks there. And I realized when he does something that he knows he shouldn't do, he tries to cover it up, and he does it with his little nose, and his nose is all of that big, and is not exactly the best tool for covering up something that he shouldn't have done. And it's really funny to think about, right? But this is how we react to our sin. We try to cover it up, just like Adam and Eve try to cover up their sin here, because they realize, oh, we're naked, and they were ashamed. But I don't think they were ashamed of their nakedness. They were ashamed of their sin and no longer wanted to be vulnerable with one another. Remember how we talked about they were naked and unashamed last week for those of you who were here? They were vulnerable with one another and they were vulnerable with God. But now they have shame because sin entered into the mix and they were ashamed to be seen by one another. <clears throat> their sin was not wanting knowledge but their sin was wanting knowledge outside of God. And so they rebelled against God, and that brought that shame upon them. And then they take fig leaves. And I was really tempted to try and see if I could find a fig leaf to order or something. And my, my 35 seconds of trying to do that, I couldn't find one that would be here on time. But fig leaves aren't exactly like putting on nice, comfortable cotton. They're much more like putting on sandpaper underwear. This is perhaps penance, but I think much more it was just shame. That shame of sin. And so, so like Moose tries to cover up his misdeeds when he does them, and he doesn't do them that often, I want you to know we have a good dog. <clears throat> we try and cover up with whatever means we can. Even if it's sandpaper, even if it's uncomfortable for us, we try and cover up that sin, and that's what they did. They covered up with these uncomfortable leaves and tried to hide from one another. <clears throat> and then God comes along, comes to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. And this, this seems like this was the norm. Like every afternoon when it started to cool off, God would come down, they'd walk and they'd talk and learn about beautiful things, and God would encourage them or tell them what he needed them to do. <clears throat> and we were meant to walk with God, which is amazing. And then God doesn't find them as he normally does. Now, it's not like God is like, gee whiz, where is Adam and Eve? He, he knows where they are and he knows what's happened, but he wants him to reveal themselves. So he calls out, where are you? And Adam says, well, I'm naked and hiding. And of course, we know, God then asks, well, well, how do you know that you're naked? Did you do what I told you not to do? <clears throat> but now we see the whole ramification of this shame of sin, right? Because Adam and Eve covered up from each other. They, they no longer shared that vulnerability with each other. And then they covered up from God, losing vulnerability with God as well. <clears throat> and so God confronts them. And the man's response is great. He says, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Now, oftentimes, like if you Google this, don't Google it. It's terrible. Don't, don't waste your time there. 
people will be like, well, Adam blamed his wife, and then we always blame women, and, and we, we probably do. I'm not going to jump onto that bandwagon, but Adam doesn't blame his wife here. Let's read this a little more carefully, exactly what he says. He says, the woman you gave me. He blames God for his sin. I mean, that's bold, right? But we probably shouldn't judge Adam because I'm pretty sure, at least I'm pretty sure I've done that, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there's, there's others here who have done that as well and said, well, you know, you let me go into this situation, and so I'm, you know, it's not my fault. <clears throat> and I, God probably just rolls his eyes, and then he spells out the curses. There's a curse for the serpent, the women, the woman, and Adam. To the serpent, he said, you will dwell on your body, on your belly, rather, sorry. And this is your fun fact. Go home and Google, or this is your fun assignment. Go home and Google snake legs. I promise you will not, or snakes with legs, and I promise you will not be disappointed. Read the National Geographic article, don't read something weird. There really is a National Geographic article, and snakes really had legs. I just want you to Google it, because this sounds like something that I'm making up, honestly, and I feel like I'm making it up every time I say it. But they did, and they still even have the genes that you can, like, enliven those genes, and they'll grow legs, and it's wild. <clears throat> um, and so I think you know, there's a little bit of testimony that this really happened out there, and we don't talk about it much because it is really weird. But he also promises that there will be enmity between woman and the offspring and the serpent's offspring, and one will bruise the serpent's head. One will crush the serpent's head. And this is the first promise, the first promise of hope, the first prophecy of Christ in Scripture, the first prophecy of Christ in the history of the world. It is promised that Christ will come and overcome Satan. And so we even have hope in this darkest of darkest of moments. Then to the woman, he says there will be pain in childbirth. What was meant to be good will now be painful. It doesn't mean it's not still good. It just means that there will also be pain in that goodness because of sin. And then the second part of that, her curse, is that her will will be contrary to her husband. Remember from last week, if you were here again, and if you were not, here's a happy little reminder for you. The husband and wife were meant to walk side by side, to be equal, to work out the goodness in the garden together. But now they've turned and they butt heads. This isn't some invitation to rule over wives as sometimes is misunderstood here. But it's, it's an acknowledgement of what sin does to our marital relationships. Sin causes us not to walk side by side to the glory of God, but to turn to each other and fight. And so it's actually an invitation for those of us who are in Christ to strive for harmony in our marriages, to strive to walk together to the glory of God. And finally, to Adam, <clears throat> he says, work again, which was designed to be good and pleasurable and to the glory of God will be hard. He says that the earth will become hard as well. And here's the first hint that we see that the earth also becomes corrupted by sin. It's not just you and I that are corrupted by Adam and Eve's sin, but all of the earth. And, and Paul, St. Paul brings this up much, much later on. 
that the earth now aches and groans for the second coming of Christ. The earth aches and groans that it might be restored to what it once was, to the glory and goodness that it was, where no more thorns and no more thistles hurt us, but yet the earth is then good again, or fully good again. And finally, and most tragically, death enters into the world because of sin. Now, as we wrap up, I'm not going to cover the last few passages, except to say that there is consequence for our sin, but something really interesting happens in verse 21. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and cloth for them. Now, we all know where skin comes from. It comes from an animal, which means that an animal had to be killed in order for God to make this sacrifice, make this these cloths, these coverings for them, which would admittedly be much, much, much more comfortable than um, fig leaves and probably much, much more effective than fig leaves. But also, more importantly, this is the first example of a blood sacrifice in Scripture. And God does it for Adam. But more interestingly, God does it despite Adam's ability to, inability to take responsibility for his sin. Remember, when God confronts him about what's happened, he doesn't say, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I know I should have kicked the snake out, and I should have, you should have not eaten of this fruit. No, God, he says, well, you, you God, <clears throat> gave me this woman, and she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Not my fault. And yet, God makes a sacrifice and provides a covering for Adam's sin. And so as we see, if we read on, that there are those consequences for our sins, but God, Adam and Eve still receive grace. Your salvation is not dependent upon your works. So often we think, well, I need to become better. If I do X, Y, and Z, God will accept me more. But your salvation is bought through Grace alone, which comes from God, by faith, which comes from God through Christ alone, who is God incarnate, who died for your sins. That is amazing. My friends, again, I will end with this thought. If you take nothing else away from this morning, your salvation is not dependent upon you, but God's work in you through Christ, and it is done for his glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.